0: Sometimes, like uh, around certain anniversaries for uh, starting Tidelands, and um, anniversary of my other anniversaries, like my anniversary of my ordination was September 23rd. So four years, I was thinking about that. I had the Facebook help me out. It had a little pop-up with the sign from Mount View that said, congratulations, Reverend Bailey. And so um, I think uh, the kids had, or Christina had one pop-up with the kids on it too. And it makes me think, How in the world did I end up on Camano Island? (laughs) I have those moments. You see, I grew up in Bend, Oregon, and I I have a lot of pride in my hometown. I I was telling that to somebody the other day that I grew up in Bend, and their response was, you grew up in Bend? And sometimes that's followed by, why did you move here? And this time it was followed by, oh, it's such a beautiful place. I love to visit Bend. You got to grow up there? Yeah, I got to grow up there. So we started talking about all the things I loved about my home. The you know 350 lakes within a half hour drive, a ski mountain. I could go from downtown Bend to the ski hill in about 15 minutes. I went world class here. You know, the U.S. Ski Team uses it as their spring spot. I mean, amazing. I could take you, if we were to travel back to my hometown, I could take you on about 50 miles of the Deschutes River some of the best fly fishing in the United States in the lower 48, and I could take you to a fishing spot on any one of those miles that I've been to, that I know about. I spent so much time there. I could take you to viewpoints on some of the cinder hills that have overlooks you wouldn't believe of the Cascade Mountains, that people don't know about because they're kind of a secret spot, and you have to be an insider to know about those spots. I could take you to places Many people who live within a few miles of these spots don't know about like the ruins of a ski lift that was built back in the 20s on Pilot Butte State Park right above a middle school but unless you hike up the cinders and know the trail to get there you never even know it was there. I could take you to Bruno's Pizza get you some of the best pizza and we walk in there Bruno would be behind the counter and he would go, Brandon! I haven't seen you forever. I used to go down there and and shop with my bike as soon as I could ride a bike. From the time I was a little kid, he's still there. His shop is right there, a little hidden local gym. Still a lot of people don't know about because it's tucked into a little neighborhood. Bruno's Pizza, great place. I could show you cabins in the woods, settler's cabins, hand-carved out of logs that aren't on any map you can go and have a beautiful lunch at. Orchards are still growing wild from the homesteaders. I could take you to places where you can only get in by walking, and once you get in, it's a valley in the desert with all these old homesteaders' cabins and wild bighorn sheep. This is my home. I think of it as my home, even though this now is my home, right, that I live here. I don't ever even remember hearing the name Camino Island when I was growing up. For that matter, I had never heard of Marysville, Washington until I got a phone call from John Mason. I had to find it on a map, and I didn't have Google Maps at the time, so it wasn't easy. Where is Marysville? And I lived there for 14 years. It was so odd when we first moved there. Everything was strange. It smelled strange, it felt strange, it looked strange. And in some ways, to be honest, now looking back, those first few years, as exciting and fun as they were, when I moved to Marysville, Christine and I moved to Marysville, they felt a little bit like exile to me. Because all that I had known was behind me. Everything was strange, even the relationships. I mean, people who became great friends like Leah. I mean, I, I didn't know her before that. So at the time, she was a stranger. Everything was new. And it felt a bit like exile. And as I was reflecting on that, I thought, you know, my first experience in my life when I had that sensation, that sort of sense of being just really disoriented and out of place in a way and feeling exiled was when I went to college. Because I went from Bend, Oregon to Whitworth University and I had only visited Spokane one other time before I went there in my whole life. And I didn't know anybody. Not a single person when I moved there, at the college. And it felt like, a, like, it felt like moving to another country, to be honest, because I grew up in Bend, and Spokane was in the same kind of climate, it's that east side, eastern Washington, eastern Oregon climate, but everything was just a little bit different. I mean, there was a historic downtown area with huge buildings. We didn't have anything like that on the east side of Oregon. So it was just strange, in the The same pine trees, but there was grass growing between all of it instead of desert. And so every, just the little things, they felt a little bit like home, but they were different. I would argue, those are two examples from my life, but I would argue that all of us have times in our lives when we feel like we're in a bit of exile. When things just get turned upside down, and it doesn't have to be because you actually move, those I think are big moments for a lot of us, But sometimes it can happen because of just a job change. Or maybe health problems. And your life changes in ways that you never thought you'd have to deal with. It could be losing a loved one. In a relationship that you can't have in the same way you had when they were alive. It could be a change in political leadership. For our county or our country. Sometimes those can have big changes that make us feel like everything is turning around. It could be depression, it could be addiction, it could be a divorce. I think there's a lot of situations in our lives that we all go through that in the moment we may not have the words, but it feels a little bit like exile. Like, how did I get here? I'm away from home, I wanna be home, but I'm not. Something has changed and I just don't feel right. I wanna read to us today From Jeremiah 29, 1 through 9. There's a famous, and actually we're going to read a little bit more than just um, 1 through 9. I think I put it on yours. I don't know if I have it on mine. We're going to read 1 through 14. 1 through 14. And there's a famous verse in here that a lot of people like to quote, although it's often taken out of context. And you're going to hear it in context. It's a verse that's often used at times of comfort. In fact, I heard it on the radio just this week. But here's the deal, we've been moving through Jeremiah, Jeremiah, and remember we said the background of this was that Israel had already been conquered by the Assyrians and taken away, but Judah and Jerusalem remained, they had not been conquered yet, but God was saying through Jeremiah this very unpopular message, I'm giving you over to the King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians. You're going to go into exile for 70 years, and then I'll bring you back. And of course, we've been looking at how Jeremiah shared that message, the the accusations that God was bringing before them, how he's saying, here's my court, and this is the evidence I'm giving before you of why you have left me and gone to other places and gone after other gods. So what happens is eventually Nebuchadnezzar does come, and he does surround Jerusalem. And at the time, the king says of um, Jehoiakim, he surrenders to King Nebuchadnezzar after a while. So as, his, as part of his surrender, king, Nez, ne, king Nebuchadnezzar, that's hard to say, <laughs> he takes the best and the brightest from Jerusalem. This was his habit and the habit of other conquering kings. So he said, I'm taking the king and his whole family, except for his uncle, who I think might be loyal, so I'm going to leave him in charge as the next king of Jerusalem. And I'm taking, you know, a thousand of the, the best soldiers and a couple thousand of the rest of the elites, the educated, the tradespeople, all of those who could, you know, bring this place back to life against me if they had a chance. So this is what King Nebuchadnezzar does. And as he's gone, um, what happens is. There's a group that's, that's staying in Jerusalem, and they're going to revolt again, okay? But they're staying, th- those who are left behind, and Jeremiah is one of those who's left behind. So that tells you a little bit about Jeremiah's status and things, right? He's, he's not the best and the brightest by anyone's standards, So he's, except for God's. So he's being left behind. And Jeremiah is carrying around a yoke, the oxen yoke, on his back as a symbol of saying, this is what God is saying you're going to be. You know, under the yoke of King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, but there's a ferment of another rebellion against him happening in Jerusalem. And there's a bunch of prophets who are saying the exact opposite. Right? And so what happens is there's one prophet right before the text we read. There's a prophet named Hananiah. And he comes out into the temple and he takes off Jeremiah's yoke and he breaks it. And then he says, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to break the yoke of King Nebuchadnezzar. And in two years, everyone who's gone into exile is going to come back. It's very interesting because what Jeremiah does is he says, Amen. Amen. I hope that is what is going to happen. It's very interesting if you go back and read it. Because you get the sense that Jeremiah is waiting upon the Lord. In this case. This prophet saying, this is the word of the Lord. Jeremiah is willing to wait and see if it is the word of the Lord. But of course, it's not the word of the Lord. And so when God confirms to Jeremiah that what he had said before about the 70 years was true, Jeremiah then sends a message to all those who have been captive and taken away into Babylon. He sends a message from God to them. And that's what we're going to read. It's in chapter 29. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles and to the priests the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother and the court officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the artisans and the smiths, had departed from Jerusalem. Okay, so the Baal, this is after the had been taken into exile. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasah, son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom King Zedekiah of Judah sent to Babylon, to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And this is what it said. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you, And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, Only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you. And I will fulfill you my promise, to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. And here's the verse that often gets quoted. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for harm. To give you hope in a the future. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart. I will let you find me, says the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Put yourself in the shoes of God's people in Babylon. God's people in exile. How do you think they experienced this letter? Now see, Jeremiah's got a bit more credibility now. Because all the other prophets had said, no, King Nebuchadnezzar will never capture Jerusalem. Well, they were wrong. Jeremiah was right. Jerusalem's been captured. Okay, but now there's other prophets who are saying, don't worry, two years and you're back. It's going to be good, right? So we don't know exactly how if they all believed Jeremiah. We know some certainly did not, because there were prophets in exile who spoke against this. In fact, a letter goes back with these guys that basically says to the officials who remain in Jerusalem, get a leash on this guy, Jeremiah. He's causing problems. Take care of him. Would you? But I imagine there were many, many people who believed this was the word of the Lord. So how did they receive it? Well, if it was me, I would be surprised. I would be angry I think I might be in denial because God says to them he says seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers you too will prosper that's why I would be angry these are my enemies they came to my home they killed my friends They took me into exile, into a place I never wanted to live, a place I've never been to. And now God says, seek the welfare of this place and pray for it. There's no place in the Old Testament where you can find the words, love your enemies, or pray for those who persecute you. That comes from Jesus' words in the New Testament, but this is very, very close to that. Because God is saying, pray for this place where you've gone, and they are... They're, they're enemies. They're living with them. In fact, the language, and we've looked at this text before because it's such a crucial text. The language in here is it says, seek the shalom of the city where I send you, where I've sent you. And pray for the Lord on his behalf because for, and this is a Hebrew word, I'm going to talk about this, but we've all heard this probably. For in its shalom, you will find shalom. So the Bible translates that differently. The NRSB says, in his welfare. But this is a big word, big deal word, for the people of God. Shalom. It means a lot more than just peace or welfare. It, has, it carries this meaning of, of wholeness, completeness, of everything being right. Sometimes even the idea of salvation is carried in this word, shalom. I love how Eugene Peterson says it. He says... Shalom means wholeness, the dynamic, vibrating health of a society that pulses with divinely directed purpose and surges with life-transforming love. You get that? It's the idea of it just sort of beating like a heart. Shalom is this idea of it just beating within a community of transforming love and, um, and divinely directed purpose. Shalom. God's message to the people in exile is nothing less than this. I want you to put on a new identity. I want you to put on a new identity. You think you're captives among your enemies. But I'm telling you that you are missionaries of Shalom in this place. You're looking at yourself as victims. And I'm saying, "In exile, I have a purpose for you, a reason I have you in this place." I imagine that the people had become a little bit lazy and even parasitic on the society in Babylon. They were just sitting around waiting for God to rescue. They weren't engaging with their neighbors. They were huddling together closer, building walls. It's interesting that what had happened with Israel, even before this, was they had lost their identity that God had given them as a sent people. They had been sent by God to the Promised Land. They had been sent to create a society that was completely different than anything the world had seen before. A society where God was king, not a human being. They were sent for a purpose. They were sent to be a people of justice, and so God gives them the law. He says, you're going to be known as a people who cares for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Unlike all these nations around you. You're going to be a nation that has courts. You're going to be a nation that has places of refuge. You're going to set cities of refuge among you. Where if someone's accused, they can run to that city and be safe. You're going to be so different. You're going to be a people of justice. You're going to be a people of mercy. You're going to be a people of wholeness, unlike any other nation. You're going to have one day every week where everything stops. Even your servants are going to get a break one day a week. Nobody else does this. God says, Because I'm your God, I'm sending you to do something that's never been done. You're going to cancel all the debts every seven years, you're going to rest the land. Even the land and the animals get a break. Once a week, once every seven years. (laughs) They had lost their identity as a sent people. And then God sends them into a situation in exile where they can begin to live as He intended them to live again. It's very interesting. We don't know all the details. But I have a feeling that this word, this letter from Jeremiah, was a big deal. And the reason I say that is that the time in exile... For the Israelites, for the Jewish people, became one of the most creative periods in all of Israel's history. The reason I say that is because scholars know that regardless of when our Old Testament was written down first, most of it was put together and edited and finished in the time of exile. Most of what we call our Old Testament, except for some of these prophets like Jeremiah speaking right now, especially the Torah, the first five books, we believe was put together and finalized during this time in exile. What (coughs) happened was they became a people who, in exile, they reclaimed their identity, and they put on a new identity as a sent people, and as a people of God's Word. It was a formational Time for them. It could have been something completely different. I think it is important to note that what Jeremiah is not saying here, is he's not saying that you should be a people who compromise and become like the culture around you. He's telling them that they need to be engaging in the culture around them as missionaries of Shalom, bringing something that isn't there, that only God can give. So he's not asking them to change and become exactly like the Babylonians, But he does say some really hard things, like, you need to actually marry into their families. You need to build houses here because you're going to be here for a while. What if God is saying this to the church today? I'm talking specifically about the church in this country and the church in North America. Because there is a narrative that I hear more and more often in Christian circles. Which goes something like. We are under attack. Christians are under attack in this country. The church is under attack. Or just the church is being pushed and cast aside. So that it doesn't have a voice anymore. And that is exactly true. The church does not have a voice like they used to. In politics. And in other forums in this country. But what if instead of looking at that as us being captives and sort of closing in and sort of hemming in and being scared, that we do what the Israelites did at this time and say, maybe God has us here for a purpose. Maybe we are meant to be missionaries of shalom in a culture where there is a lack of wholeness and peace and justice. Maybe there's a reason for it. It's very fun to study church history because the times that the church has been the healthiest has always been the times when it's been under greatest pressure and attack by the governing elements, whether that be a kingdom or a country. You look at the church in China today, it is vibrant, it is growing, it is powerful, and I don't think you can find a place except for maybe in North Korea where the church is under more constant attack by the government. And yet it's thriving and growing. And in the places where there have been open doors to Christianity, Canada, the UK, the United States, the church has been dwindling and dwindling and dwindling. Makes you wonder, right? So what if, instead of looking at ourselves as victims, we think of ourselves as being sent people, missionaries of shalom. And then what would that look like? You know, I do still long for uh, my hometown. I mean, sometimes I dream about perhaps living there again someday. But you know what? That's not my home right now. I love this community. I love this place where I live. This will be my kids' home. Someday they will talk about this place the same way I talk about my hometown. So I could have an attitude of, I just can't wait until I can get back to my home. If only I could have these things. If only it could be like it used to be. But you know what? None of the places here are home. For any of us who are Christians, we have not arrived there yet. God promises that there's going to be a restoration. That there will be a new heaven and a new earth. That things will be set right. That's the home that we all long for. So maybe we need to see ourselves in this life, wherever we find ourselves, as sent people, as missionaries away from home. What would it look like practically? Well, you think about the, the exiles in Babylon. I mean, what would they have to do to fulfill God's charge here? He says, I want you to build houses, and I want you to intermarry, and I want you to plant gardens. Right? And I want you to pray for this place. I want you to seek it, Shalom. Well, they would have to learn the language. That would probably be the first thing they'd have to do. They would have to, uh, to build houses. They would have to learn how you build with the materials they have there because it would have been different from where they had. That's humbling. If you're a contractor, you're an artisan or a smith, you're now in a place where you have to go to someone you perceive as an enemy and say, Would you show me how you do things here? You're gonna plant, it's gonna be different. The seasons are a little bit different, the weather's a little bit different, the plants that they use are a little bit different, the food they make is different. So you're gonna to have to learn. You're gonna to have to go to your neighbor and say, can I borrow some of those seeds from that weird-looking plant you got, can you show me how to plant it? It involves relationships, and it involves listening, and it involves humility. What would it be like practically to seek the shalom of our neighbors in our community if we're sent to it? Well, I mean, just a few examples that come to my mind. I think we would begin to get involved in the kinds of things that this community needs to flourish. Not just in church activities. I think we would see a lot of us beginning to volunteer on boards, volunteering in our schools. Visiting people who are sick. Caring for those in this community who are vulnerable and voiceless, which means we have to find them and build relationships with them because they're probably not in our circles right now. It would mean building relationships with people who aren't like us for truly to seek the shalom of this community. And I think that's scary for us just as much as it must have been scary for the first, those exiles in Babylon. I think more than anything else, what we would see is evidence of this. As we would see people who are broken coming and surrendering their lives to Jesus. And we would see Jesus setting them free from living a life that's self-centered and fearful to a life full of meaning and purpose and relationship with God. And this is just another way of looking at some of what we're trying to do with missional Sundays and missional communities, is we're trying to figure out how can we do this in a very specific way to a specific group of people. So if we look at a subset of this community, because even this community is big, and you think of all the needs and all the things, but if, if I look at a smaller group of people, and I get together with a group of a few others who are Christians, and we say, how do we be missionaries of Shalom? What would that look like? What kind of things would we see happening to this particular people? And then we begin to take steps to do it. Begin to do what God said to the exiles. Begin to pray for them. Begin to pray for their shalom. And we would let people know why we're doing it. Because, you know, eventually people are going to want to know. People are going to come over and they're going to say to the Israelites, um, What is this book that's so important to you? That you keep trying to transcribe and put together. Why, why is it that on, on Saturday for the Jews, Why is it that on Saturday... You're not doing anything while the rest of us are working. I mean, there's going to be, it's going to be so obvious that they're bringing something different that people are going to want to know. I want to just end by reading to you from John 14, 27. And in the Greek, there's this word that's being used that basically essentially means the same thing. It's the same Hebrew idea of shalom. It's a little bit different word, but if you translated it, In the way Jesus would have probably been thinking this and saying this, John 14, 27 sounds like this. And this is what he said to his disciples right before he left Shalom I leave with you. My shalom I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have given to us a purpose. That you have given to us both this peace that passes understanding and also a wholeness to our life that we could not create on our own. Lord, we know with all that's been going on around us that there is a desperate need for your shalom in this place. We know that we can't create it, but we know, Lord, that you call us to be a people who participate in it. So Father, give us a vision and give us courage and give us imagination to be your people in this place. And Lord, for anyone who may be feeling right now like they are in one of those times of exile, I ask God that you would give to them your vision for the purpose during this time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.